Sure, Shackle, as Bavaliam Kerfel Cherry all you. Tanenemorum, Marilyn Crellen. I'm Marilyn Crellen, and I'd like to welcome you to this programme, Shackle. In Shackle, we look at some of the cultural and historic events of the island. On Shackle, Tashinjikin Ekus J. Tackett and Kulturolis Shandiak Fanon. Bertha Vamuaturit Ek Langlish, a boat that was wrecked on Langness. Brian King tells us about the background to a new publication by Lockton Books about the wreck of HMS Racehorse in 1822. We'll start, though, with music. After the success of last year's inaugural event, the second Portair and Jazz Festival will be taking place tomorrow, Friday the 7th of October, and on Saturday the 8th of October. On Friday the 7th, special guests are guitarist Martin Taylor and singer Alison Burns. Here's a sample of their work from their performance of the song J'attendre. J'attendre Car l'oiseau qui s'enfuit Vient chercher le bli Dans son Temps passe et court en battant tristement dans mon cœur si lourd et pourtant j'attendrai ton retour. Martin Taylor and Alison Burns performing on Friday evening the 7th of October in the Erin Arts Centre for the Port Erin Jazz Festival. The following evening, Saturday the 8th of October, also at the Erin Arts Centre, alto saxophonist Alan Barnes and pianist Dave Newton will be performing. Here's an extract from their performance of the popular Duke Ellington composition Don't Get Around Much Anymore.
Pianist Dave Newton and saxophonist Alan Barnes, who claim they don't get around much anymore, which is not true, because they're always in great demand. Alan Barnes also plays clarinet and flute, as does Becky Rourke, and she'll be there supporting Dave and Alan, together with the Leeds College of Music Jazz Band. Other venues where you can enjoy music during the Port Heron Jazz Festival this Friday and Saturday will be the Bay Hotel and the Falcon's Nest Hotel. For lovers of the blues, on Saturday the 8th of October in the Centenary Centre in Peel and on Sunday the 9th of October at the Erin Arts Centre, Blue John, John Gregory, will be performing. John, John Gregory, he'll also be presenting Howlin' Matt, who's an accomplished blues singer and guitarist, particularly on a homemade guitar made in the way of the old Delta blues singers from a cigar box. Here's an example of his work. taking the gravel road there and he'll be performing with support from Blue John, John Gregory at the Centenary Centre in Peel on Saturday evening the 8th of October and at the Erin Arts Centre on Sunday evening the 9th of October. And Club Fosch de Goldach, Cora Tebun und Snaichi Jeg Trijegas died. Egatresh Shen, Vadolia Dunsmanen, Gethin Storje Echo Hionit, 
de mor uns neuchi jeg shejegas died, va pasunen uns mannen as an airsock a come banglen mannenach jane club for wushta goldach. Ach vich and jeshectus son jinuecho hionet a hostel egatres shen, mush kechid ne quegkid punt as a shen roch hostelach and son. Ni ai, uns naiki jeg, hawk jeg is died, who is your vesh mucha as so ail elian vanen, coli enel no, as magethen, and jeshectus de yinu echo hionis erahon. Fry Joanna Cain, alter jena ovrian inzach excel and the marafert chan, jay and shavesh mucha, machiaun kirail shavesh der tumadrin yes. And vlain again, how Joanna Cain toshacht. A curl a soon in their slider in the schlein shirret, the vena alter jane club for washed goldach, as Rabanglen vanen curret a bun. Two hundred years ago, in 1822, a revenue cutter, HMS Vigilant, was damaged during a storm in Douglas Bay. In fact, the anniversary of that incident is overnight, between the 6th and the 7th of October 1822. The Admiralty decided that the vessel should go for a complete overhaul at Plymouth. As there was need for a vessel to escort and assist the vigilant, HMS Racehorse was dispatched. However, on her voyage up the east coast of the Isle of Man, HMS Racehorse ended up on the rocks off Dresdick Point, on the southeast of Langness, on the evening of the 14th of December 1822. The full story of these events including seven crew members who perished and the bravery of the men of Castletown who risked, and three of them gave, their lives in their rescue efforts, is now available in a timely publication by Lockton Books in this 200th anniversary year of the events. The book recounts the story and includes historic official documents about it. A key and very interesting part of the book is about the work that took place from 1968 onwards, with divers going on to recover a whole range of artefacts from HMS Racehorse. Leading the project for the Isle of Man branch of the British Sub Aqua Club was Brian King. And the book contains not only his first-hand account, but also some of the charts he drew at the time, and from which the team was working. He is Brian King talking about his involvement with the project and how they managed it. The interest in maritime history and heritage obviously is something that drives people to become members of the Isle of Man branch of the British Subaqua Club. What was it particularly in 1968 that attracted attention to HMS Racehorse? I was always interested, I was very interested in diving at this time and um, I was going through the museum looking for details of shipwrecks as was Brian Stigand, uh, who I became very friendly with. Um, but it actually, the racehorse came about when I got chatting to Lieutenant Chambers um, from Castletown, retired Royal Navy, who I knew socially, and he told me about this ship out at Langness that he'd found out. And um, I followed it up from there with uh, Brian Stigant. We went round and found the details in the newspapers, and that's what started, triggered the whole thing, actually. Mm. I think, like a lot of divers at that time, it, it intrigued 
any shipwreck intrigued you and you like to know a little bit about it and in those days of course you quite often liked a souvenir I mean it was nice to get a ship's bell for example or something like that but uh, we went down on it just because of general interest and um, I started going down and finding out a bit more about it I became sort of involved in it Um, and it just went on its own from there when I was first looking for the shipwreck and uh, we, uh, I decided to have a good look for it, uh, I went down to the Maritime Museum at Greenwich to get some documentation and uh, all the records are there, but in the middle of it all they moved to Kew Gardens. So uh, later on I went down for a week and spent a week at Kew Gardens going through all the records because there, luckily, because it was an admiralty ship, and the court-martial, all the records are kept there, and if you go down and you get the right references, you literally get a cardboard box tied with a red ribbon. They bring out, and they open it up, and there you can actually see the captain's log, the muster book, I got the supplies books, I got every, all the information I could need. I spent a whole week down there, and of course that is, the result of that is the information which is in the the book, which includes things like the lists of every crew member who was there, what they were carrying, um, an interesting aside to it is that um, the cruiser class of which the racehorse is one of there were over 200 of them built was um, very uh, very efficient and the Dutch wanted one and they actually went out and captured one called the grasshopper and took it back to uh, Holland and put their shipwrights over it and uh, they then used it in their navy but it was then recaptured back again it was renamed the Irene by the Dutch and recaptured back again by the British. But what was interesting was about 40, 50 years ago, uh, a book was published in Holland listing all the information that had been found under the name of the Brig Irene, which is what the Dutch had called it, and we used that book as a reference for all the information that we could get off the shipwreck itself. You did develop it into a, a proper project. It went down in June 68 and did a very much organised dive on it. But then you had to learn extra techniques? Yeah, well, when we first went down on it, um, it we were just recovering the artefacts that were on the surface because at that time it wasn't a protected wreck and any dive we could go down there and having dived on it and found it, we realised that lots of artefacts were lying around generally and could just be picked up. Uh, and could possibly disappear. So we then, then, in conjunction with the museum, um, Larch Garrard, as it was in those days, uh, she uh, encouraged us to go down and recover all the artefacts that we could find on the surface as long as we logged where we found them. After that, it sort of it fizzled out a bit. We recovered all the surface artefacts that we could. Uh, and in fact, I wasn't actually a member of the Isle of Man Survival Club at that time. Uh, I was doing it freelance. So from there, um, it just lapsed. And Colin Colvin, who was uh, also involved with this uh, at early stages, decided to uh, follow it up and try and get some ownership or get some protection for it. And it was he who uh, worked and got the protection uh, organised um, with uh, Johnny Crellin from the museum who bought it uh, on behalf of the Sobaco Club and uh, it became a protected wreck and nothing was done then for a few years. Mm. So when we uh, went back again in, uh, later on to do it properly, uh, by then the Alaman Sobaco Club, which was, I was a member of then, and of course they owned the wreck by this time, um, we had our own boat, so that helped considerably as opposed to the early days when we were sort of cadging lifts out in boats. 
but uh, the club had got a couple of uh, 16 foot and 18 foot uh, boats so we did get out there quite easy operating from Castletown Beach most of the time. When we first went there, of course, all the, all the surface artefacts had been recovered by us initially, so then we had to start digging a bit deeper. Um, and at this time, uh, we weren't sure what to, how about to go about it, so that's when six of us went down to the Mary Rose and worked on it um, and spoke to Margaret Rule and explained the situation, and she gave us some guidance about how we could tackle it. But, of course, the racehorse was totally different from the Mary Rose. Mary Rose was sitting in sand, a flat level bottom, whereas our racehorse was in the middle of rocks and jagged rocks at that and tides and various things like that. So it was quite difficult, but we used to operate quite often from Castleland Beach. It was the nearest place, um, and we had to time it right with the tides. Uh, but it, it was uh, okay because it was shallow and just had to be careful of the tides. Mm. When we first, when we did go back down, um, th as I said, the surface ob objects, artifacts on the surface had been removed, but we could see um, various things underneath rocks and things like that. So we had to start what really became an almost major excavation by lifting rocks. Some of them must have been weighed a ton, half a ton, and certainly were eight and ten feet across. Um, we had to lift them to get at the artifacts that were underneath, and then underneath those were smaller stones, which we moved um, by bucket, really, put them into bucket and walking along the bottom and taking them well out of the way. Um, and it was during one of these lifting sessions that uh, when the, a rock slipped out of the slings and dropped and we ended up finding what we call Tony's Hole. Uh, Tony's Hole, while well, we were recovering the rock from there, um, Tony Heaton, uh, who the hole was named after, um, noticed some glistening bronze in the corner and that started the excavation in that hole, uh, which resulted in us finding the gunner's chest. While we were carrying out an organised excavation there, we were operating from Castletown, and um, Castletown commissioners uh, were very helpful, and they loaned us the land of a hall uh, just in the square, and we actually had an exhibition there of the artefacts as we were finding them, and uh, many Castletown people came in to see it, and that was the start of the exhibition, which we then held again, uh, later on in Loch Promenade Church mm. where we had oh, something like oh, 60, 70 artefacts. And with this being the 200th anniversary of the race, also, there's going to be some uh, special events as you were the person who was leading the expedition, the project to recover these artefacts, you were quite involved with that as well. Yes, it's been a, a re return really. I mean, the, the book which uh, was published this year um, was a from documents I've held all these years and uh, I was worried that they were going to be lost if something wasn't recorded um, but from that um, I got involved with the Alamance Battle Club again and um, they've been very enthusiastic and with the help of uh, Alison Fox and the museum and um, the, the idea is to celebrate the 200th anniversary and uh, the artefacts will hopefully be on display and uh, certainly at Castletown Part some of them, hopefully at the uh, commemoration, and then later on, which is will be the 200th anniversary of the RLI, which resulted as, as regards because of the racehorse, um, that will be going to 23, 24. Mm. Uh, the racehorse itself is commemorated in the book, the wreck of the racehorse that has just come out from Lochton Books. How did that come about? 
I tried before to do a book with a record all this, but various things had got in the way. Um, but I accidentally um, found out about um, Lockton Press and Sarah Goodwin and, uh, and uh, George Hobbs. And uh, I just showed them the material and said, I've got all the material here, but it needs some sorting out um, and putting into context. And uh, would you like to have a go at it? And uh, after about two or three weeks looking at all the information, they came back and said, yes, we'll go for it. And uh, the result is the book. Brian King, whose account of all that was involved in finding and recovering artefacts and information associated with HMS Racehorse, forms the central part of the publication by Lockton Books, which is simply called The Wreck of the Racehorse and is available now at £14.95. It's well illustrated, including some images from the collection of Ray Stanfield, who's advised Brian King to get in touch with Sarah Goodwins and George Hobbs of Lockton Books in the first place. In the Manx Society's Volume 21, Mona Miscellany, second series, edited by William Harrison, he outlines the events of the 14th of December 1822, but it comes under the heading The Rose on the Beam, and he says this. It appeared that a rose had been painted on one of the beams of the cockpit of the vessel. This incident induced a gentleman then in the island, Captain Hook, son of Major Hook of the Royal Artillery, who had resided for many years in Douglas, to write the following song, which appeared within a few days after the loss of the racehorse. The Rose on the Beam The rose is now withered and sunk in the grave. Its leaves are now blighted and wet in the wave. No more through the stream the proud racehorse goes. Yet life's brightest sunshine was under the rose. Oh, sigh not, for fancy shall picture full true all the moments of gladness which there swiftly flew. And as memory shall trace her full sail down the stream, do you think she'll pass heedless the rose on the beam? Ah, no. Yet time, sand, must run on and decay. And memory, like evening's last gleam, fade away. The heart must be blighted, life's current be froze, ere the days be forgotten, when under the rose. Then tarry ye moments, too swiftly ye fly, our leaves like the rose must soon wither and die. Life quickly shall pass, tis a feverish dream, and too soon be forgotten the rose on the beam. The Rose on the Beam, a song written by a Captain Hook following the loss of HMS Racehorse on the 14th of December 1822. A 
That's all from Shackler this time. So from me, as Michelle Vaughan, Marilyn Crellin, sledding you 